Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Chris Rogers of Panjiva. He spends his days watching the trade data roll in and and telling people about what is going on as, as these crazy times are with us. Trade Talks listeners might be aware of Chris without even knowing it. Chris is the one typically behind the charts that if you are a subscriber to the Financial Times Trade Secret Daily Newsletter, that's Chris's handiwork right there. And so with that very brief introduction, I think we should just get straight into it. Chris, hello. Hey, Samaya. Hey, Chad. Thank you for having me along. It's uh, great to be here. So first of all, could you just give the slightly more formal uh, explanation of what, of what you do day to day? What are you looking at? What, what, what are you trying to do? Yeah, sure. So um, Panjiva, or S&P Global Market Intelligence, Panjiva, to give it its full name, is a system that gathers global trade data, principally using shipping documents. We gather up data from 17 countries in the world, gives us about two-fifths of all trade globally. My job within that is to help explain what all of that means in the real world. You know, at the end of the day, people do care about numbers, but they're more interested in what the numbers are telling them. When my uh, kids were little, they used to uh, say, so, so what is it that you do? And I said, well, I tell stories about numbers. And they're like, oh, OK, that's, that's great. Can we go and play outside now? OK, so Chris, your job is to, to tell the stories behind the data. So, so tell us about the biggest story in the world right now. Should we start by just talking a bit about what normally happens around Chinese New Year? How, how do you see that show up in the numbers? Yeah, sure. So Chinese New Year normally drifts relative to the Western calendar by up to three weeks. And so what you'll see is that they rush to get goods out of the door before New Year can start anywhere from early January through late January. You then get the break of a week where nothing happens. It then takes another couple of weeks before everything gets back up to speed fully and shipping starts heading off to wherever it's going to head off to. And what that means is it can make it very difficult to track what's really going on, not just in the Chinese economy or or in South Korea, but more broadly, because the data for January and February can, can be kind of, as we call it in the trade, smushy. And we've seen certainly this year that uh, that's been exacerbated by the extended break that was enforced by uh, the coronavirus outbreak. In terms of magnitudes, you can think about the drift from one year to the other, maybe bending January or February's performance up or down by somewhere between 5 and 8%. So it's fairly significant in, in the trade world, that, that sort of move. So it's made it difficult to kind of track what's really going on. Okay, so so normally in in Chinese New Year things are a bit smushy. Uh, it's it's difficult to tell exactly what's going on, but this year obviously the there was the Chinese shutdown. What could you see going on in in the weeks immediately after uh, the Chinese New Year this year? Yeah, so I think I mean there's all kinds of different outcomes. The biggest one obviously is that trade just stopped. You know, there there were no shipments coming out of ports, either the inland ports or the outbound ports. Uh, you can see that from the, the data that uh, tracks where ships are actually located. So the shipping location data showed that obviously straight away. It's taking a bit longer, of course, for the impact in China to pop up elsewhere because it takes literally weeks for these vessels to 
cross the ocean. You know, they don't just go from one point to another. They make these circular routes, making several stops along the way. And effectively, what that means is the a disruption in one place can have a knock-on effect over a period of weeks, possibly even months, um, as you then follow where those vessels are meant to be going. So what else did we see then? Some of the other things that we've seen happening are the almost immediate interruptions in supply chains, particularly for companies and industries that run on a a just-in-time basis. Uh, We saw a big part of that almost immediately in the automotive industry, which is kind of well-known for for running on a very lean basis. We saw, for example, Hyundai turn around really within a week or so and say that they were running short of parts and were going to have to pause production one of their factories in, in South Korea. So the impact of the closures in China propagated really quickly into those kind of supply chains that are very reliant on those deliveries. Similarly, in the electronics sector, there were very early reports that there were going to be pauses to production, not just within China, where you have tightly integrated supply chains, but overseas as well. It's worth bearing in mind that the outbreak really got going in Hubei province, which you know our data shows is you know really a, a major centre, not just for electronics but also for auto parts, and so you know it was kind of almost an immediate impact that that was seen there. One thing I heard about was that this was creating quite a lot of disruption to logistics and equipment. So essentially, you had all these vessels stuck uh, just outside China, waiting to drop stuff off and, and pick stuff up. And so you had this sort of weird imbalance where there were, in some cases, reports of, of shortages of containers elsewhere because everything was stuck in China. Yeah, that's right. The, um, the technical aspects, I think, of, of what's happened to the logistics industry haven't really been looked at that closely. Empty containers was a big part of it as well. In fact, exporters of distillers dried grains, of all things. So you make ethanol, you got the leftovers, you ship them to China where they um, use them as animal feed. The exporters in Chicago, because there hadn't been products sent out from China, didn't have the empty containers to then fill with this these grains to then send back again. So, so there's been this kind of knock-on effect. And that's going to continue as well, obviously, because whilst the Chinese ports are now open, all of the products have now got to get to the ports, have got to get out again. The products that have come from overseas have got to be filtered through as well. And, you know, even on a good day, it can take, you know, several days to unload and turn around a major shipping vessel. So, you know, it's it's no surprise that, you know, even though China is, you know, according to most reports, you know, reopened for business, you know, we, we've not seen that kind of de-bottlenecking yet. And, uh, you know, certainly I think we'll, we'll certainly see the port companies continue to uh, raise this as an issue for some time. So how do companies um, cope with all of these bottlenecks? Yeah, sure. So the shipping companies firstly did what any company does when there's a shortage of demand for their product, they cut supply, right? So we had what are called blank sailing. So rather than committing to uh, delivering a committed voyage, the voyages were just cancelled. So that took a lot of shipping capacity out. What other companies then sought to do was really to look for sourcing from other areas where it was available. Most companies, particularly big companies, will have a degree of resilience in their uh, supply chain. So they'll source from different countries. So if the China source isn't available, you, you might draw from another country. And certainly we've seen that in the very recent data that we've had for the US, where although there was a significant drop in imports from China, there was a bit of an increase from other Asian countries that were alternative suppliers. 
I think it's worth bearing in mind there that the strategies a lot of companies were using are similar to what they've put in place for the trade war. So Stitch Fix, who are a retailer of apparel, actually turned around and said, look, we've learned what to do here. You know, we've had the lesson from tariffs. So all we're going to do is just accelerate the changeover that was already in place. Now, clearly, as the virus spreads, the ability to do that lessens. But certainly, you know, early doors after the um, outbreak, that was uh, one route that was being used. A third area was the use of air freight. So effectively, okay, we can't move by air, excuse me, by sea, but as soon as we can, we're going to ship stuff out by air. Deer and company, so the guys who make the, uh, the big green tractors, actually said they were going to spend $40 million on air freight in order to make sure they got what they needed and where they needed it. I was, I was looking into this, this question of, of whether the, the preparation for the tariffs had been useful. And I suppose in one sense, though, the tariffs and the, and the coronavirus are quite different in that, you know, you, you can still source a lot of your supplies, your raw materials from China and then have them processed somewhere else and then, you know, import them from that other place to, to dodge the tariffs. Um, but if the coronavirus means that those raw materials in the early stages of production can't get out, then you might still be hit. I think it's absolutely right that what we've seen is a very different kind of disruption here. In effect, companies are now facing not just a first-tier supplier issue, which is what you have with the trade war, they're actually facing a a second-tier or a third-tier supplier. So we were already seeing apparel companies, for example, in Cambodia and Vietnam, which have been classic kind of move-to countries, say, look, we can't get the production done because we're not getting the raw materials from China. And again, that's another example of where an interruption in one part of the supply chain can take you know, really weeks to, to work its way through. I want to go back to one of the things that you said about air freight. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that and what the airlines are actually doing in all of this? The, the increased demand for expedited shipping has led to a you know, significant increase in, in air freight rates. And at the same time, you had these concerns around uh, a shortage of passenger flights, right? And a lot of cargo, uh, particularly stuff that's booked late, goes in the holds of passenger jets. And so what happened is effectively the air freights rose to a level where it was actually worthwhile the passenger jet operators and Delta and United were quite early in the game here saying, you know what, we're just going to charter these jets as if they were freighters. Uh, There's quite a nice photo today, I think it was in the Financial Times, effectively, of the guys at Lufthansa strapping packages into seats to actually make sure the goods got to where they got need to get to. You know, I, I've said it you know, in other venues, and I'll say it here as well, you know, supply chain and logistics folks are just complete heroes. You know, they always find a way to, to get what they need to, to, to go where it needs to go to. Um, what I don't know, of course, is whether you can pay extra for your package to go in business class. <laughs> oh dear oh dear um yeah having spent the past um couple of weeks talking to quite a few logistics folks that was the the message um i spoke to Eitan buchman buchman from mm-hmm. freitos and he has this slogan uh, which is ship happens um <laughs> and you know you you kind of get on with the job um <laughs> Is there any sense in which all of this disruption um, from China actually happened at, at a good time? 
I mean, you know, it's just just after the the Christmas surge. Are there any industries that that had a lucky escape just because of the timing of this? Oh yeah, for sure. I think you know the the interruption to production came at the you know almost the precise trough of the year. If you think about goods where China is you know a major or the only major manufacturer, you're looking at toys, which you know you need for the holiday season. You're looking at laptop computers, which you know typically get sold during the back to school season or in the holiday season. When you think about apparel, China is more prevalent in what you might call complex winter apparel. Which you don't need till the winter. So, you know, if you were going to pick kind of a, a window where there would be, you know, less disruption than another time of year, then that's when it would be. However, causing an interruption at any time isn't great for, you know, obviously these reasons. But actually, what we're seeing is the knock-on effect to downstream supply chains probably couldn't have come at a worse time, because this is when factories are starting to ramp up to meet the demand and to fill the warehouses. In time to start sending those goods out. So, when you look at how、uh, the timing around when peak season is for shipping, whether that's in North America or Europe, you start to see the ramp up come in July. It then dips down into September and then peaks again in October through to November. So that initial kind of July August bump is is potentially at risk at the moment. So that's China. How about some of the other areas of the world that are now themselves suffering from the the coronavirus disease? What's happening there? Yeah, so we're beginning to see quite widespread lockdowns, a move to essential manufacturing only, or a prioritisation of those areas. You know, people being encouraged to work from home where they can, and that's inevitably going to mean that we're going to see, you know, in other countries something very similar to what we saw. In China, with the the difference that probably the Chinese authorities were harsher sooner and maybe for a shorter amount of time, whereas in other countries we're seeing the lockdowns happen in a very different way. So, you know, for example, in、uh, India and Malaysia, which are you know significant producers not just of consumer goods but also medical supplies, you know, we've seen these these shutdowns happen. We're already seeing both companies and port authorities start to declare. You know that they can't deliver this this kind of force majeure declaration on a contract, and in fact, it was only a few hours after Prime Minister Modi announced the lockdown in India that the Indian ports started to declare force majeure for inbound shipping. We're also beginning to see some of the、uh, impacts in Europe, so outbound shipping from Europe's beginning to dip already. When you look at the knock-on effect to North America, that's somewhat quicker, partly because just the shipping distance is less. Partly because the shipping routes are more direct, and obviously we'd already begun to have disruptions in Europe because of what had happened in China previously. So actually, if you look at shipping from Europe to the US in the first two weeks of March, it had already fallen by seven percent. You know, and, and that's with you know lockdown in northern Italy, which had an impact particularly on、uh, industrial companies relying on that area, which includes、uh, aerospace. It includes. Automotives again. I seem to spend my entire time talking about the autos industry at the moment, but you saw that kind of hit through pretty quickly. You know, you only need to be missing a couple of components, and you suddenly just can't run your factory, or you've got to run it slower. I think we're also seeing as well as、uh, this kind of complexity around the production being available, but the demand not being there. Can can we、uh, I guess go a bit deeper into the example that I think you wrote about、uh, today as we record this on on Thursday March twenty sixth、uh, about the trade in in ventilators.、Mm. What's been happening to trade flows there? 
Yeah, so I think the uh, the, the trade in ventilators is a, an interesting example of of how supply chains can break down really really quickly. A big chunk of the imports that uh, that go to the US, for example, are ventilators that have been manufactured in the European Union. So the EU accounts for you know just over a third of all the ventilators sent to the US, and uh, Singapore's about another ten percent on top of that. Now. You can kind of see the early signs of, of a disruption in supply chains actually quite early in January because there was a huge ramp up about a doubling of shipments of ventilators from Europe to the US quite early on. A lot of that appears to have come quite late in the month as well. So there's a degree of stocking up. But at the same time, there'd been a drop in imports of ventilators from China, you know, partly due to them at the time being covered by tariffs. Partly because obviously the the Chinese government would have been you know, retaining that that equipment for use within the country. What we're seeing now as well is that as we see these different companies ranging from Dyson in the UK, the auto companies potentially building these things as well, we're beginning to see issues around where do we get the parts from? Because you know whilst Elon Musk can say, well, you know, we make the forced air system for a Tesla, you know stick a mask on the end and off you go. It's clearly not that simple. You know, a ventilator is a piece of complex medical equipment. And you know, there's only so many companies in the world who, who make the individual components that go into them. Quite apart from the fact that a ventilator on its own is no good if you don't have the plastic pipes that go with it. And there's a limited number of places that make the plastic pipe. So you're back to that kind of single component point of failure challenge. So, you know, whilst it's encouraging that, you know, you've, you've got countries thinking about their sourcing, as the Trump administration is doing with the Defence Procurement Act, that's not going to go anywhere if you don't have the supplies available, either because of export restrictions or just because of a shortage of the, of the parts that go into these things. I was having this uh, conversation with a customer the other day who actually works in the automotive industry. And he said, well, you know, in the auto industry, if you want to work out what our competitors are doing, we go buy one of their cars, we rip it to pieces and see where all the bits came from. I'm like, don't go and buy ventilators to rip them apart. That is not a way to win friends and influence people at the moment. <laughs> Good advice. Good, Good advice. advice. Yeah. Um, can we talk about some of the other, um, I guess, policy responses that we've seen to all of this? I mean, because it, it is the case that some countries are actually dropping trade barriers, right? It's not just export restrictions that we're seeing. Yeah, that's right. We are seeing tariffs being cut back where it makes sense. You know, we've seen a lot of that from the US already with regards to the Section 301 tariffs, so the the tariffs applied as as part of the trade war. Um, They do seem to be going through this slightly torturous process of of, uh, applying individual exemptions for individual tariff codes rather than just saying, you know what, if it looks medical, it's done. And, And in many regards, you've got to say, well, why don't you just get rid of all the tariffs on everything? You know, if you're launching, as many countries are, huge stimulus packages, why are you leaving these taxes in place on the other side. And I get there's kind of politics behind tariffs that aren't just them being a tax. But, you know, if if we're going to do this thing, let's do this thing. You know, just remove all the tariffs altogether. Now, that, that's easy to say, right? It's it's difficult to do. So, you know, we, we are seeing, you know, a, a reduction in, in protectionism. But guess what? We're seeing the reduction in protectionism from the countries who are buyers, not the countries who are sellers. So this week... I have been writing about how I think that trade is going to fall in the near future, global trade. And I suspect that the 
collapse is going to be sharper than what we saw in 2009. What's your prediction? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. We're going to see a, a, you know, a far and fast fall, uh, if that's not too alliterative, in global trade activity. I think it's worth bearing in mind that you know, we've already seen global trade in a downturn already. You know, the, whether you look at the, the data from the CBP, the, the Dutch organisation that gathered the figures, you know, they showed there was a, a drop of a couple of percent in January without any of this going on. And there was a decline throughout mar- most of last year. So you know, you've already got that backdrop of, of weaker trade going on. I come back to the, the data that we've just seen in the US for the first two weeks of March, you know, 45% drop from China, a 15% decline in overall imports to the US. You know, going forward, we're going to see, you know, I think similar drops. So, you know, 40% plus drops in exports from probably most other countries that have got a significant exporting industry. And so, you know, whilst you're not going to see every country drop at the same time, you know, even if you just have one major exporting economy drop by that much for a couple of weeks, that's enough to start generating 10, 15 percent you know, declines in total trade over an extended period. It's not just about supply going AWOL, it's about demand disappearing. You know, without stepping too far outside of, of, of the trade channel, you know, you've got to say if people have used up their savings during this difficult time, they're not going to be going out and, and spending large as soon as the, the doors open. So that, that kind of depressive effect could be there for quite some time. It's worth bearing in mind as well that business sentiment wasn't great to start with either. You know, there's still that, that hangover from the, uh, from the trade war that's there. And, you know, that, that kind of, once we get past this bit of noise, that background noise will, will come back, I'm sure. So what about services? What do we know about, you know, what's been happening in, in services trade? Yeah, so services is fascinating because, you know, with goods, you've got incredibly granular, you know, highly frequent, really low latency data. For services, you've got virtually nothing. You know, even a a well-developed statistical agency, as you see in the US, will publish, you know, country by country, what, 10 lines, 11 lines, maybe six to eight weeks in arrears. So, you know, the services industry, you just can't see that much of of what's going on. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, a lot of the data that's published for services is actually estimated. If you look at the the way, if you look at a chart of how trading goods works, it's really spiky, it's all over the place. Services trade is suspiciously flat. And and so that to me says we don't have a good grip on what international trade in services looks like normal times, never mind what you see in dislocated times. Okay, last question before we let you go. Um, Do you think that this COVID-19 virus is going to have lasting effects? I think it's certainly, it will have lasting effects on supply chains. I think I'd I'd probably break that into kind of two parts. I think the first one is it's going to lead companies to say, okay, I need a geographically diverse supply chain because I face geographic shocks, whether it's COVID-19 whether it's climate change, whether it's politics, you know, these are all areas where you know, geographic diversity in your supply chain can be valuable. One of the things we've seen in our data over the past three or four years is kind of a, a bundled trend. On the one hand, companies reducing the number of suppliers they have because you know, efficiency is a good thing for stockholders. The second is that kind of move away from China, which you know, was happening anyway because of labour costs, because of tariffs and so on. You know, 
you will still see more kind of moving away from China, but it's not because of where this disease started. It's a, a longer term trend that was there anyway. So geographic diversity is, is the first thing that I think this, this drives. The second thing is asking how just in time you want your just in time to actually be. Put another way, you know, how much do you need in the warehouse? Bringing stuff in on a pallet and putting it straight on the car is fantastic up until the point those pallets don't arrive. And then they don't arrive for a week and maybe two weeks. Or most of your pallets are arriving, but that one widget hasn't arrived. You know, we, we may well see companies say, actually, we got too lean. Actually, you know, having a bit of fat for the bad times is, is a good thing. At least that's what I tell myself when I'm sitting down for dinner. Very good. Um, Chris, I think, I think that is all from us. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Huge thanks to Chris Rogers and S&P Global Pangeva. Do check out their research at pangeva.com. Thanks also to our audio guy, Colin Warren. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And we're at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. And two is better than one because you never know when you're going to run out of underscores. We're like our own supply chain. (laughs) 